and welcome to The Bomb, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the Farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Joining us today for his second go-around is a UK-based independent researcher who covers a variety of topics. He's very much a fellow after my own heart, and his specialty is a subject that I have a tremendous amount of interest in. He is the host of the YouTube channel Understanding Conspiracy and the author of the forthcoming work that Nephilim looked like clowns. This is the great Paul Stobbs joining me again for round two of our discussion on the esoteric origins of clowns. We got going here in the first one and uh, covered a lot of fascinating prehistory concerning the Nephilim, the Great Flood, the Book of Enoch, and all that other good stuff, as well as various traditions of demons and what all of this stuff has to do with clowns. Yeah, guys. We're back here again. More nasty clowns, more evil clowns, more trippy clowns, more dirty clowns, and even more demonic clowns. So, our deep dive will commence, and this time around we are getting into the Joker, Pennywise, and the astounding fiction of Stephen King. Maybe even a little bit about AI and the Hat Man. It's going to be quite a discussion. So, on that note, let us start the show. get into uh real quick some of the the reoccurring use of black and white and why that is such a common motif uh yeah sure so um brief briefly summarizing this i think a lot of people get a bit deeper about this and they necessarily need to be um i think it's representative of many things so the first is being a literal representation of the spiritual realm that these spirits are trapped in 
um in a way as disembodied spirits they're in a binary dimension rather than our three-dimensional realm i don't believe they're in a better place than us if you understand so a lot of people get mistaken when they take things like acid or dmt that they're going to a better place than our our current world you know but i believe they're actually going to a lesser place a place where uh, bodies don't exist you know that so it's not a three-dimensional world in from our particular understanding you know even though i know we live in four dimensions and perceive the third um and you can get, you can get into physics about that all you want but um i do believe where these entities um reside is is, is more of a a two-dimensional binary realm of color and form and pattern you know that can give the illusion of three dimensions but it's still within a a limited capacity for physicality um, so I think the black and white is representative of that figuratively, first of all. Um, so Freemasons use the black and white pattern quite a lot of the checkerboard, don't they? And people often claim to visually see the checkerboard when taking psychedelics. It's a common visual motif of like, those experiences. So I think the black and white patterned um, images we often see represented with clowns, they often are seen wearing black and white patterned clothing, is is a a spiritual or metaphorical or, or um yeah it's a metaphorical image for the fractal realm they're currently residing within as disembodied spirits so that's one way of representing it um so it's symbolic in one way but i also believe there's it's also a literal representation of how they now look in those spiritual realms i think they look like beings of form and line and pattern with a jester like visage if you understand. Um, so they aren't physical bodies like we would visualize them. They're chaotic forms of pattern and light, light and fractal forms. But they have a they have like a, a slight embodied fuzzy outline to them because they are still a, an entity in their own right, just without a body, you know. And I think that looks like a jester to most people who go to those places. And jesters are often represented as having checkerboard black and white patterns mixed in with red and black and all sorts of colors as well. Um, but this isn't also to say that they didn't have the black and white pattern on their own skin when they were in physical forms before they were wiped out and killed. So you have the Hayoka tribes in the Americas, for example, and there's another one in um, the Pueblo tribes, I think. They also have their sacred clown, which I think is a direct representation of these entities. And they believe they looked physically like black and white patterned beings, you know. And I, I don't think that is out of the realms of possibility because... In their physical forms, they had features like that of a serpent or a bird or an amphibian or a fish. And, you know, we can see that nature has a very psychedelic and bright colored palette when design, you know, when it comes to these animals, these creatures. So these features would have been prominent in the angels and their offspring. So I think the black and white pattern is, you know, is threefold. It's a symbolic of the realm they're in. It's symbolic of how they look in that realm currently in a literal sense as well. And it's also a, a literal description of how they may have looked when they were physical. So the black and white pattern is always shown when discussing spiritual realms, especially in Western media. I'll say that Twin Peaks is a very good example. Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm kind of fascinated by how this played out uh, with the two cities, uh, Odessa and Haran, uh, during the Middle Ages. Are you familiar with either of those? Um, no, no, I'm sorry, my focus hasn't been there, but enlighten me, please. Well, they were, I guess you could kind of describe it as like uh, the white and the black cities, if you will. 
Mm -hmm. uh, Edessa had been controlled by the Eastern Roman Empire, I think up to about the ninth uh, century or so. And then uh, even after it was conquered by Islam, there was still a very strong presence of Christians there. Um, it became just mm -hmm. an ongoing obsession with the Eastern Romans trying to uh, recapture it. And then during the Crusades, uh, it was one of the regions that was taken by the Crusaders. And I believe it was King Baldwin who had set up his uh, particular kingdom there. But there had been a lot of uh, long-standing speculation that it was actually more of a kind of Gnostic or Neoplatonic uh, form of Christianity that prevailed in Edessa, uh, which is why it sort of had the reputation as the city of the uh, the shining sun and all this other stuff. Hmm. And then, conversely, you had Haran in Syria, which was uh, where the Sabians resided in. And this place continued essentially the tradition of the you know i guess you would call it the almost astro theology of uh, the sumerians and the babylonians mm -hmm. so the ninth of the 10th century they were described as having quite an elaborate uh temple there that they would use to draw down these uh, planetary intelligences and uh, i was also you know, we'll probably get into this in the end uh, when we get into AI a little bit, but it's fascinating because it was one of the last areas that was really described as having the uh, the quote unquote talking statues that mm. uh, we hear so many descriptions of uh, in the Greeks and ancient Egypt, referring to ancient Egypt temple, Egyptian temples and so forth. So uh, apparently these practices uh, that had their origins in a lot of the uh, religions of antiquity were continued uh, in Iran. And specifically, it was kind of overseen by uh, what had been, I think, the Sumerian uh, moon god Sin, if I remember correctly, ironically. Uh, but I'm not sure if that was what the name had been used at the time. But it was always associated with uh, lunar worship, which is why it had sort of the... Uh, reputation is the black city in terms of the uh in contrast to the white city of Edessa which is I believe a little bit to the north of it but uh these two cities had just this this ongoing rivalry uh for centuries on end and then you have a lot of I think esoteric traditions that were in the west that were probably heavily influenced by them because on the one hand there was the I believe strong Templar uh, connection to Edessa, which is fascinating in and of itself. But then conversely, um, there's a lot of indications that some of the Franciscans were really fascinated by the writings of the scholars in Haran, Sabian scholars, that is to say. Um, I've often sort of, because again, in terms of like the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller, I mean, a lot of these orders actually uh, grew out of the uh, the monastic movements of the Middle Ages. Uh, the Knights mm -hmm. Hospitaller came out of the Benedictians, and then the Templars really came out of the, uh, the Cistercians or Cistercians. I can't remember exactly how it's pronounced. And then uh, conversely, you had the Franciscans. And of course, um, St. Francis is uh, sort of equated sometimes as the saint of fools uh, and that kind of thing. I mean, certainly he was known for using a lot of humor in his parables of course there's the one where he uh supposedly talks to animals and just a lot of other kind of strange stuff like that but um francis was supposedly a troubadour as well uh which is another kind of archetype that's closely related to the clowns prior to becoming a monk which is another sort of fascinating aspect of that but um 
kind of toyed with the ideal that Rosicrucianism in turn was a bit of an outgrowth of uh, some of the more esoteric traditions and uh, the Franciscan order and in turn kind of going back uh, with Iranians because again besides the sort of obsession with uh, humor and stories and uh, Rosicrucianism you also see a lot of the uh, the interest in theurgy which was a very big practice with the Haran Sabians as well um, but yeah I just I find it really fascinating that even within these you know seeming two major repositories of you know a lot of the you know quote-unquote esoteric traditions of the um uh the ancient age uh antiquity they were sort of uh confined they resided in these two cities that were kind of symbolically associated with this contrast of white and black mm. prevailed for so many centuries and then i mean i suppose in a way you could almost even see uh because again haran was typically overseen by uh the Islamic forces, I believe, already going back to like the fifth century. One of the reasons why the uh, practitioners there had taken the name Sabians, even though they don't uh, seem to have been related to the biblical Sabians, is because they were considered people of the book in the Islamic world. So it kind of gave them a, uh, a way to continue their practices, if you will, without um, you know, uh, risking over persecution. But obviously, mm -hmm. Islam has, you know, the connections with the crescent moon so much. And then, of course, Christianity has always had that association with the sun. So it's, it's just really fascinating in that context as well, where you had almost the literal kind of like white and black cities and the, uh, mm -hmm. the different strains of esoteric knowledge and all that. Result. It seems it seems almost built into us to naturally yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's associate these drama. Being yeah. Played out yeah. Something. I think we find fractals of that all over the earth uh, represented as, as the battle between a perceived good and a good or a bad or um, a dark and a light or uh, just oppositions of all kinds, you know. Um, the duality, the dualistic nature of life is is a well understood concept in that say something like Taoism of the Eastern perspective, when the symbols for that are the black and whites and the white within the black and the black within the white dots and so forth. Um, so I'm not surprised that we would find the these these archetypical. Uh, manifestations of spiritual concepts through color palettes which are you know light representations of of spiritual concepts in the said the black and white city you know um and the idea of you know, that to me echoes to something quite archetypical about the two towers you know um the symbolic meaning behind all of that and we don't have to talk about 9-11 to understand the symbolic and uh, ritualistic meaning behind that event you know if you want to bring down the two towers and um combine them as one um, but also, if you want to consider the black and white symbology, you'll find that uh, the high priestess in the tarot sits between two pillars of black and white. And these two pillars are often represent representative of the two pillars of knowledge, um, which were left behind after the flood, which were then used as pillars to um, embellish the front of Solomon's temple, which is uh, held in high regards within Freemason and secret societies themselves. Um, Solomon's Temple, you know, use these two pillars known as Jaquin and Boaz, which represents again the sun and the moon, as you mentioned earlier, uh, represented with black and white. Um, and it was believed that these pillars had hieroglyphs on them, which preserved the sacred knowledge. Um, if you can get into the obviously divine magic of theurgy, like you mentioned earlier, it all basically comes from the preservation of that kind of knowledge. Uh, from these two particular pillars, which preserved the knowledge during the flood, and these two pillars were created. We're going to go even further back um, by the the father of hieroglyphs, the person who invented such things, 
um, which is Lamech and Enoch. Um, it goes all the way back to the beginning if you want to start following the, the sources of all this stuff. And obviously these characters go by different names to different cultures. As I mentioned earlier, Hermes is one name for Enoch or Thoth is also another name for Enoch um, in, in Egyptian cultures. Um, I'm sure he had many names all over the earth, you know, but uh, this this father of wisdom and knowledge preserved that knowledge on two pillars, um, one black, one white. So I think it's it's all connected in, in some kind of weird, esoteric, underlying type of metaphorical yet literal way. And I think um, the spiritual and the physical are just forever joined in this symbolic dance. It's quite interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating, too, about Taoism. I was not uh, familiar with that association with the white and black patterns as well. But um, I've kind of come to view Taoism as a, <clears throat> a kind of keen uh, to uh, Sufism in the Islamic world and uh, in the mm -hmm. Western world, uh, very much with, uh, you know, because I was talking about the tradition from Francis to Rosicrucianism and then really even in the uh, contemporary times to Discordianism. So it's, yeah, very interesting. Another sort of archetypical drama playing out there. Absolutely. I mean, the whole Taoist thing, um, they, they just have this understanding of the nature of reality that um, you can't have good without evil. Um, but you don't have to talk about it in morals terms. It's also the idea of um, there's no up without a down. There's no um, there's no hot without a concept of cold. It's um, it's that all things in this realm that we exist within it comes within a duality. You can even look at our own bodies. We have a left and a right side, and one will not exist without the out the other. You know, it's 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 a matter of function and form rather than morality. Um, then obviously um, you find people in Western cultures get a lot more. Um, metaphorical about it you know and do start to maybe i would describe it as going off and quite vain philosophies you know um which kind of soothing to the ear and fun to philosophize and think about in terms of a practical sense i think the, the these eastern religions were more were far more practical about the concepts you know and didn't necessarily uh, use them in ways to uh create mastery over people in a way you know or control i think that is is um an abuse of the sacred knowledge and science essentially and there are players out there evil players who will use this knowledge for nefarious purposes and often their personal gain um but i think in the there's this other kind of sect of people out there who believe that you know they're using this knowledge for good and to preserve it for good and maybe that was the case at some point i think that this day and age i think it's getting a little bit more more corrupt as time goes on it's interesting because it says you know in the end times, it'd be like it was in the days of Noah. And I think for a long time, there was the good lineage of Seth, who did preserve the knowledge and use it for good. And then there was the bad lineage of Cain, who was using the sacred knowledge for corruption and control. And then eventually, there were no good people left. Um, corruption won, you know, and that's why the flood happened. And I think perhaps, I don't want to be so negative about it, but um, maybe we're, we're in the throes of the same the same drama being played out again, you know? those who have corrupted this knowledge, uh, sorry, occulted this knowledge and used it for their own personal gain to control people are kind of becoming more and more dominant. And through the revelation of the method, you know, they're getting more and more people on board to think their way about it. Um, I don't think many people are even in touch with any spiritual concepts these days or even think about it, to be honest. But um, there was a point, wasn't there, in our past, our, our relatively, relatively ancient past where humanity and spirituality and was one. You know, um, you could not think about one without the other type of thing. Um, but times have changed, you know, which is why I think 
when I'm talking about Nephilim looking like clowns, for example, people just just do not understand at all immediately what I mean by that. You know, I mean, I think it was you know kind of an inevitability of the the rise of secular materialism, really, because it absolutely fundamentally stripped the West of any sort of concept of the uh, the spiritual world. You know, we just became in total denial of it. Mm -hmm. So you know, that was uh, I think really what laid the foundation for uh, what we're currently getting into now. Exactly. Well, that's what I mean. It, it meant uh, demons could manifest more physically through things like clothing and people dressing like clowns. And people wouldn't realize that's what was happening. You know, they see a clown and they traditionally understand a clown to be a honk, honk, juggling, funny man for children. They don't realize that what they're looking at is a manifestation of a demonic being, you know. But then you go to these other cultures around the world and they still preserve their culture throughout the millennia. They know what they're dressing like and why, you know. And our ignorance comes from, like I said, our lack of a connection to spiritual concepts or the spiritual realm with the rise of materialism in the West. It's um, It all goes hand in hand. But I find it interesting that the clown is so prolific now in the West as a symbol, as an, as a, as an icon, as a thing, you know. Um, even the, the proliferation of the, the phrase clown world became a huge thing in 20, uh, after 20, uh, maybe 2016, after the clown sightings happened. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, if suddenly the, the, our language got overtaken by the concept of a clown as well. And it's, it's, it's just fascinating. Uh, fascinating. So, um, Anyway, before we continue, I'll let you uh, go on with your questions. Well, no, I mean, I think it makes absolute total sense because really in a lot of ways, the uh, the clown is sort of the symbolic archetype, I think, or the trickster of the uh, this other world that we've been talking about, mm -hmm. as you were saying. So, I mean, it's not surprising to my mind that it has manifested so much now uh, in the contemporary world because essentially it is a an archetype of chaos and that is very much what we're getting into so it's it's yeah. very apt on many levels oh absolutely yeah yeah this is the thing we talk about i, I do this all the time when i have interviews with people we start with the intention to talk about the clowns but talking about this ends up being a discussion about all of ancient history <laughs> it's uh it has its roots in everything um, and the clown is just the surface level manifestation of of a deeper a deeper rooted problem. It's a symptom of a deeper problem. You know what I mean? Um, you know. So, if, for example, if we look at the archetypical characteristics of a Western clown, you know, um, white skin. Now, white skin is the one of the most common descriptors of the Nephilim of the past. But we also have more modern descriptions of the Nephilim, like um, the tribes in um, North America who were haunted and and killed by white-skinned, red-haired giants. In the end, the people took it upon themselves and these tribes to slaughter these red-haired giants for their own safety and smoked them out of a cave, you know, and burnt them alive, basically. They they described them orally as tall, with very white skin and very red hair. And then you have the giant of Kandahar instead. I don't know if you want to take any credence whether that was true or not, but it's claimed that in, in Afghanistan, a soldiers came across out of a cave, a very tall, white-skinned, red-haired giant of some kind. And now the white skin is a common descriptor of clowns. They always wear white makeup. And the wild red hair is another common description of a clown. And the red nose, I believe, was a literal feature of a lot of these Nephilim of the past. And now the red nose is synonymous with a clown. We even have a day dedicated to this called Red Nose Day. I think it's a Canadian thing as well as a, a British thing. 
but it's a yearly ritual in which they get everybody to put red noses on and it's to raise money for charity for children of course it's always about the children you know um, but again that's another veneration a yearly ritual we do where we dress like the nephilim but the red nose as well i think is also metaphorical of the blood around the face these things were cannibalistic in nature and they were often you know tearing into a human body and as a result like a child who's eaten too much uh, spaghetti bolognese has blood all over the mouth and on the nose which is where the clown makeups come comes from for the red nose and the white the red around the mouth uh, the wild red hair again common uh, descriptor of nephilim uh, the large shoes the very large comical tie or gloves or jacket which we see on a lot of clowns i think is representative that the clowns are representative of giants and giants had large bodies and they would have needed a large tie or large shoes or a large jacket or gloves because they were giants, you know. Uh, the small car, the small umbrella or the small hat symbolism which we see with clowns, again, is representative that they are giants. And umbrellas and cars and hats would be tiny on these things if they were to wear a normal sized one. Um, stilts, synonymous with clowns make them taller because the Nephilim were giants, and that's what the clown represents. Uh, the neck ruffle of a clown um, is a reptilian feature. Uh, reptiles are known to have frills and plumes that go around the neck. And one of the most infamous examples people will remember is the dinosaur reptile from uh, Jurassic Park having one of those frills that spat black goo at the face of people. Um, but that's actually a very real reptilian feature if you look at real life, especially in Australia, they have reptiles with these frills. I think that's what the neck ruffle truly represents. People could say the esoteric understanding is it's to represent aristocracy of the day. But esoterically, it's a symbol for the serpent, uh, the plumed serpent. You know, uh, The high brow ridge in the makeup um, is indicative of them having elongated skulls. We found plenty of examples of elongated skulls found all across the earth, dug up from the ground. And the Nephilim are representative of having elongated skulls and a lot of artwork, especially a lot of Egyptian artwork as well. I think the high brow ridge of the clown makeup is indicative again of that. And as I mentioned earlier, the clown aesthetic was invented by a Freemason called Charles Didbin, who knew full well, I believe, what he was trying to represent with this introduction of a new wardrobe change for a traditional Harlequin show, you know. Uh, the crosses on the eyes, I think, are representative that this is representing a dead spirit, a disembodied spirit who is physically dead. And we put crosses on the eyes of people in uh, cartoons to represent that they are now dead beings, you know. But it also could be indicative of maybe a serpentine slit for an eye instead of a human eye. Uh, the horn that we often see, a clown honk honking, um, I think is a, a nod and a wink to the the forms now being disembodied, that they are strictly in the realm of uh, frequency and sound. We find that bells are a huge motif in folk traditional cultures who also dress in a certain way to venerate the Nephilim, which have clown features. Um, but bells are synonymous with it. And I think the horn is just a Western clownish amalgamation of the same thing. Often clowns are mute. They cannot communicate by traditional means anymore because they are disembodied spirits of the Nephilim and they can't talk. They have no mouth. Uh, so obviously the clown is usually mute. Think of a mime. A mime is, is, is an offshoot of the clown character, but a mime often shows itself trapped in an invisible box. It cannot communicate with you. You cannot hear it. It is a black and white, fractaled, lined, disembodied, patterned spirit now. It cannot communicate with you. It makes no sound in our realm and it's trapped inside an invisible matrix box. 
all the symbolisms there. You know, if we move on to jesters, the jester hats that we were um, is indicative of horns. And obviously a lot of these Nephilim beings and this demon, demonic iconography is synonymous with having horns like an animal. I do believe a lot of these Nephilim had animalistic features inherited from the anamorphic parents, which were the fallen angels. Uh, the jester bells at the end of the bell's hat, same thing as the horn of a clown. It's it's a frequency sound thing. It's to do with their disembodied nature. Uh, jester's clothing, we mentioned this earlier, the clown clothing. It's indicative not only of the serpent-patterned skin that they inherited from the serpentine seraphim angel parents, but it's also indicative of the psychedelic fractal realm they're currently disembodied within as well. And um, The circus itself is a huge symbolic thing to represent the realm these beings dwell in. You know, it's a tent. It's an enclosed space away from the world. It's psychedelic in nature. It's colourful. It's full of light pattern and form and music um it's full of clowns it's full of jesters and jokers which are the demons it's led by the ring leader or the ringmaster and we'll get into that later the hatman character um and that's you know that's that is the clown as we know it today like i said it all of its roots come from an invention of the minds of freemasons you know the 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 creator of the modern circus the Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey, Freemasons to the core, they invented the circus as we know it today. And they got their inspiration of the clown character to use in these circuses from Charles Dibdin, another brother within the society who created the very first costume of a clown, which was worn by Joseph Grimaldi in his shows. The very person who popularized the clown over the Harlequin within pantomime shows. It's all connected to the occult, Freemasonry, and it's by design. It's not an accident. The symbolic imagery of a clown is a caricature of the Nephilim. It's a grossly exaggerated, over-the-top representation of something very real that existed in our past and haunts the memories of all ancient cultures around the world to this day and is still venerated and worshipped by these secret societies it never changed the practice is ancient and it's continued and the, the the joke of it all is we don't even know they're laughing at us and it's not really a laughing matter even though we're talking about clowns you know oh absolutely uh, another tradition i was thinking of too also is the whole uh, concept of the feast of fools uh, in catholicism which there were of course multiple attempts to um, suppress over the years. But of course, you ended up having the proverbial king of fools uh, for a particular week. And uh, in the UK, I believe it was the uh, the Lord of Misrule or something like that. Um, fascinatingly enough, uh, another one of Victor Hugo's novels, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, uses the Feast of Fools quite prevalently as a major plot point, uh, which he uh, locates the climax of on... January 6th. <laughs> um, so that's a fascinating one. Another date uh, that's been put forward was uh, January 14th, uh, which I believe is now celebrated in some uh, Catholic sects as the Feast of the Ass, if I remember correctly. Mm. Um, but that was the, uh, the day that Elizabeth Short's body was found on in 1947. That's the Black Dahlia. Who uh, famously had the uh, the Glasgow smile, 
interesting was recovered yes yes so that's very interesting yeah so the thing is the thing is the symbolic nature of a, of a jester in its own right as being somebody who who was let's say allowed to mock the king was kind of above the law in a in a sense and was allowed to do through satire what no other human human being was allowed to do which was essentially mock nobility you know and people say you know maybe it was to keep the king grounded and keep him from getting too haughty or full of himself in a way um, but the, the symbolically speaking, you know, this this idea that this entity is is allowed to um, mock the highest form of authority, you know, there's something subtly blasphemous about the whole concept, but uh, it's kind of accepted within within Western society as as a as a norm. You know, co- I mean, comedians in their own right in the West are kind of venerated as gods. I would say they're they're allowed to take on that role, you know. Um, but I, I try not to hold too much importance within my book in theory about the symbolic the symbolic meaning of the archetype of a jester in society. I mean, my theory is very literal, you know? Um, I think that's the, the point I try and drive home more is that these representations of a clown we have in the West are literal representations of a very real thing that actually existed. Do you know what I mean? Um, like I said, the Nephilim of the ancient past. Absolutely. Well, do you want to get into a bit of uh, color phobia and potentially how it's been hardwired into our DNA from the ancient traumas involving these kind of like things? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've no doubt that the reason we're naturally, well, a large portion of society naturally isn't easy around clowns is because it's kind of set in our DNA, you know, that we should be scared of things with those features. Um, you have to understand in the antediluvian age, you know, these beings were terrifying like truly terrifying creatures you know i don't know i don't think we can truly understand just how terrifying it was i mean have you ever seen a giraffe just off off the coffee have you you been to a zoo and you've looked at a giraffe before have you been had that experience i'm not yes 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 yeah and have you have you ever looked up at that giant thing in front of you and thought wow that's a lot bigger than i thought they were going to be Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that looming sense of fear. You know they're not going to hurt you. They're quite harmless creatures. But still, it's quite a scary thing to look up at a creature that large. Okay, and that's probably the closest thing a human being can get to seeing a creature that large in front of them. Now, double that size. Triple it, even. That's how big these things got, you know? Imagine being in the presence of one of those with clown-like features, psychedelic-coloured, serpentine-patterned skin, an incredibly wide, double-sets-of-teeth-road grin looking at you. And it's not like it was grinning. It's that its its mouth rested like that because of the nature of its face, picked up from its serpentine parents. You know, a snake can dislocate its jaw to eat its prey. Its mouth is that wide. And that's how wide the mouths were of these beasts, you know, with crazy wild red hair, disjointed, sharp, angular features, a huge head, and enormous to boot. You know, one of these things comes up to you. What are you what are you supposed to do? You know, you could run, but it'll get you. You know, ten steps to you is just a little bit of a skip to him, you know, it's nothing. <laughs> like <laughs> What do you do? Well, you get down on your knees and you beg for mercy and hope this thing understands concepts like mercy. There's nothing else you can do. It's either that or die, isn't it? You know, um, And that's how terrifying it was in the past when these things were everywhere. And it's why they became the kings and rulers so quickly. Who can stand in the face of these things truly? Who's going to stand up to them? Nobody at all. And that 
backed by their angelic parents and no doubt their bizarre supernatural abilities inherited from their heavenly parents, you know. These things were a terrifying a thing to behold physically, you know, and and just spiritually as well. They were they were truly a monster. They were hideously monstrous. You know, they were monstrosities. I can't explain it anymore. It's um, and obviously with this understanding now that they had what we consider clown-like features, can you be surprised that it's kind of deep rooted into our very collective psyche to have a, a mistrust and an uneasy feeling around things with clown-like features? I don't think so. I think it makes perfect sense. Now, I find it fascinating, too, that um, so many children have reported to finding the clowns are traumatic uh, in witnessing them, which mm. is fascinating because I believe that this has actually been a case for a very long time. And uh, despite that, you know, we sort of deliberately subject children to clowns without thinking about it, even though it is often a uh, kind of a traumatic experience for them. So... Yeah, I mean, I I always say I always check the news, and uh, there's always an article every two or three years pops up about colorophobia. It's like the the mainstream media tries to remind us every now and then that clowns are real, and you should you should be scared of them, you know. And the the, the going academic theory is, you know, um, the makeup means you can't see the facial expressions, which naturally makes human beings uneasy. That's kind of the psychological understanding behind it. I personally think it does go a lot deeper than that. Um, but I think I also find it interesting that they do regularly try and keep us up to date with remembering that clowns are scary, you know, <laughs> through the media. It's a strange one. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then, I mean, even, you know, when you sort of get into some of the mythology with, say, like uh, the Piped Piper, for instance, and uh, mm -hmm. bad association with kids and even then, it's like, well, you know, even though that's sort of like an early kind of archetype of the clown, you know, we still sort of think of, uh, in a, I mean, maybe not as much in the contemporary era now that the evil clown has become so prevalent. But I mean, for so many years, it was just sort of, oh, you know, kids and clowns. It's like, uh, you know, ice cream and uh, bananas for a chocolate split or something. Or a banana yeah, it's a, it's a laughing matter, isn't it? It's like, oh, the clowns are just there to entertain children. You know, the Shriners will dress like clowns and go to children's hospitals. They will go to the hospitals full of dying children with cancer and in their last moments on Earth, traumatize them with the image of clowns. You know, it's, it's something deeply sinister about the whole thing. And it, it seems like connecting such a heinous thing, which we now understand it to be through my theory, to children just makes the whole thing a lot more sinister and darker than we ever really understood or imagined it could be. You know, it's um, it's hardly surprising that they always come for the children, don't they? That's just the way it is. That's the way these these um, powers that, that be operate. You know, we could get into all the talk about things like adrenochrome, you know, and... Um, the, the the belief that uh, children's blood filled with adrenaline has magical properties to maintain vitality and youth in people. And uh, again, is this some kind of constant ritualistic ab abuse going on of dressing like clowns and putting them in front of children? I don't know. Um, but there's, there's something messed up about it. And I think children are a lot more attuned to spiritual concepts than we are as adults. I think children are more instinctively terrified of clowns for reasons that perhaps an adult wouldn't understand you know in a spiritual sense all right uh do you want to get into a little bit more now about some of the jester and clown like entities people uh reportedly observed under dmt absolutely i mean i think joe rogan has made this popular hasn't he 
Um, he's the biggest proponent of this idea of the uh, the the jesters on DMT that people see, and it's it's not just him. It's it's a very common motif that people, when they take things like dimethyltryptamine, uh, which is a chemical we release when we're born, when we sleep, and when we die. So it's a chemical that's involved with the the transportation of our spirit, let's say, from one realm to another. Um, that's one way to describe it. Um, when people do end up being in this other place, uh, they describe themselves constantly being um, met with je- jesters or things of a jester-like nature. Um, and it comes with jester-like activity, like um, Joe Rogan describes it, sticking the middle finger up at them and saying, why are you taking life so seriously and all that sort of stuff and swearing at people, you know, and laughing at them, saying, ha, 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 look at you, you idiot, you know, as if you're taking everything so seriously. So it comes with the comedic element of being a jester. But if you go on the aesthetics alone, then what people see are the disembodied spirits of Nephilim, as far as I'm concerned. And when they were alive, they did have clown-like uh, imagery. And I think in their spiritual form, you know, they still reflect that kind of pattern within their form in the spiritual realm, you know, and that's what looks like a jester to us now. Um, I think the jester is the spiritual form of the clown like Nephilim in the physical form. You know, that's kind of my theory on it so far, but there's um, no doubt at all that when people go to this other realm, they're not going to some kind of higher plane of existence. I believe they're still right here on earth but just have pierced the veil which hides these entities. And, you know, I've been to that realm and I understand how trippy and psychedelic it is. Um, I know it can seem like it's amazing, you know, when you're someone new and better than this place because of how beautiful it looks. Uh, but I'd say, you know, don't give in to awe and understand that where you have gone, you, you know, you never really, really left the earth. You know, you're still here. But now what you've done is you've opened up the ability to see the unclean spirits that have always been there since since the flood you know and they will lie to you as far as i'm concerned they will they will tell you whatever you want to hear as long as it's not believing in god um and they will make you believe you are a god they'll make you believe that they are aliens from another planet communicating you through interdimensional five-dimensional i don't know third eye chakra alignment or something they will tell you anything else whatever it is um as long as you believe it and it's not god and it's not jesus because uh, the issue is, you know, we're talking about possession. These entities want bodies. That's what they're after. You know, they want a place in which they can reside so they can experience the pleasures of the flesh again. And they'll do that vicariously through you, whether you know it or not. They will influence you to partake in things that they find pleasurable. And they'll make you believe you chose to do it. The longer you go without realizing they are there, the better for them the longer they can go on experiencing these things. Now, if they can convince you in the DMT realm that you should let them in and willingly allow them to be there knowingly and accept them, even better, you know? But as soon as you realize that you can cast these things out through the authority given to you by Jesus Christ, the very same person who cast these entities out when he was here on earth, you know, walking with men and his disciples, then that's just not optimal anymore, you know? This is the problem with human possession. It's kind of, it's messy for demons because as soon as the person wakes up and realizes they can kick him out, it's game over. They have to go back to the dry places and continuously be hungry again. So they have to go and find another body to possess and they have to go through the whole motions again of convincing somebody else to let them in or finding and opening a door in some way. Um, you know, but that's, that's what, that's, that, that's the game they're playing basically deception. How can they convince the individual? 
to allow them to live vicariously through their flesh and their body because they don't have one anymore. And um, cultures around the world who do things like ayahuasca, you know, and uh, take these psychedelic uh, brews made from bizarre roots they find, like the Wadabi tribe when they do the fertility ritual to attract a mate, you know, they do it in order to allow the spirits in to teach them a lesson or give them the ability to perform in a certain way. Um, when we do it in the West and take DMT, we, we just don't know what's going on. We're, like I said, we're in this kind of realm where it's like we don't know anything and we're, we're kind of like just ignorant to what's around us. So when a being comes up to us shaped like a jester, you know, and starts saying all this stuff and you don't know anything about spiritual concepts at all because you've never even thought about it, then why wouldn't you trust it? You know, you think, wow, this thing's beautiful. It must be right, you know. And that's why I think the Bible explicitly says, you know, no marvel for Lucifer himself poses an angel of light. And, you know, you, you should test the spirits no matter what. And I don't doubt that these entities are beautiful things to look upon, but just because they tell you something doesn't mean it's true. And I think a lot of people fall victim to that as well. Um, but yeah, jesters in the DMT realm, it's just more of the same. It's just more Nephilim spirits. It's just more clowns. So you didn't really have much of a concept of Sufism, um, I take it then, and sort of the traditions there with uh, um, sort of the archetype, the earlier archetype of fools, right? Uh, not, not really. No, no, it's, uh, it's, it's new to me. I mean, in terms of research for my book, um, I'm kind of doing it as I go along and I'm learning a lot as I go along. I mean, I know a certain amount already, um, but in terms of like things like this, I'm happy for people to give me information. So what can you share with me about this? Because I am making a well, yeah, I mean, it's again, it was kind of closely connected, as I said, with the Sufis and specifically like with a lot of the dervish traditions. I think there's the one uh, kind of order. I think it's maybe pronounced calendar or calendar or something to that effect. Hmm. Um, but yes, typically they were sort of known as these wild men, the fools and so forth of the deserts and so forth. And um, hmm. later, I believe... Um, uh, it was also somewhat uh, common for Sufis to disguise themselves as clowns and things of that nature. So there was always that kind of tradition with that. And then, of course, there was also the the use of humor as well in a lot of Sufi teachings and so forth, which, uh, again, is where I find um, a lot of interesting parallels with Taoism and then later in the West, Russia, Crucianism and Discordianism. Because there is that sort of sense that humor could be used as a uh, kind of teaching method. Um, I believe there was like what the one uh, Sufi parable or something where um, a mother had come to the uh, uh, the head of the order and asked him if um, he could uh, ask her son to uh, stop eating chocolate for a week or something to that effect and uh, he told her that uh, he would talk to the boy but to come back in a week and then he would discuss the matter with him 
And so she did and came back in a week and um, she asked and then he, you know, has the conversation with the kid and then he comes out and says he's going to try uh, not eating chocolate for a week. And the uh, mother goes back and asks him, um, why did you need to wait a week to, uh, you know, tell my son this? And he said, well, I, I had to go a week without eating chocolate myself to see if I could do it. <laughs> Because, uh, you know, I can't ask the kid to do something that I can't personally do because that wouldn't make any sense. So, mm. but yeah, I mean, you have like a lot of these sort of like cheeky sort of parables like that. And then, you know, sort of alluding to like in the Franciscan tradition of uh, Francis, you know, kind of trying to talk to the animals and things of that nature. So there was often, I think, this uh, use of humor that was prevalent in these specific kinds of traditions so that's one of the reasons why I kind of see Sufism as a, a crucial branch in a lot of this, uh, especially between sort of the Eastern traditions uh, which you've talked about, where it's much more open, and then maybe some of the more esoteric Western orders, because I do think Sufism probably influenced a lot of this stuff uh, more than it's given credit to, because so much of the um, the rich esoteric tradition of the West really grew out of that area. Uh, yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm getting, uh, I'm getting Shriner vibes from this. Is, is Sufism and, and the Shriners linked? Yeah, to their yeah. Own, there's right? been a lot of, yeah. There's been a lot of uh, speculation that the Shriners and then, of course, the Royal or the Jesters as well were partly yeah. inspired by Sufism. But I mean, a lot absolutely. of this, you know, you can kind of see in that area around the Pyrenees, you know, the sort of the traditional border with uh, Spain. In southern France, and I mean, it's, you know, just had so many different traditions there. I mean, of course, you, during the uh, the years of Islamic rule, you had a lot of the uh, Sufi orders from the Moors and so forth. The later mm -hmm. you had a lot of the capitalistic traditions. Uh, in fact, I think that was some of the areas in the uh, northern Spain were really kind of the heartlands of the Kabbalah for a lot of years. And then, of course, on the other side of the border in southern France, I mean, that was a major region in Cathar country and a lot of that kind of stuff. So, uh, mm. yeah, you know, there was this presence, though, of Sufism for a lot of years in that region. And also the troubadours, I should point out as well, were just huge in that whole area northern spain southern france so i think that it did bring much more into western esoteric traditions and was sort of a crucial link point for some of the transmission from the east and we just don't really see it i think as such as much as we should well it's it's, it's well known that a lot of freemasonry is inspired by eastern tradition it, it really is um i mean they, they have their own well they used to have their own phrase they used a long time ago they would ask, you know, they ask a, a brother, "Are you a traveling man?" to find out if they were actually a member or not. And the the typical response, depending on where, which level they were at, was, "I've been traveling in the east, but I am now in the west, or something." But now I've come back home to the west. And this mention of traveling to the east to gain wisdom before you come back home to the west and settle was a sign that you were a high level Freemason who's done the research and then come back back to reality, if you get what I mean. But it's in, in this in implies that um, Eastern philosophy and religions played a large role in their, their knowledge, like I said, inspired um, the roots of this kind of uh, mysticism, we can call it, you know, um, which is in the Western cultures, like I said, the Western shrines and the Western um, sects and cults, secret societies, definitely. Well, let's get into uh, contemporary pop culture. This is um, certainly a fascinating topic when it comes to the whole concept of clowns. 
So obviously, as I alluded to a little bit earlier, the evil clown is practically a cliche in this day and age. But yeah. I mean, that in and of itself, I think, is highly significant. So what's your take on sort of this cultural assault? Uh, well, ba- basically, if we go off the assumption that all media is controlled by nefarious powers, you know, aligned to this agenda, which we've mentioned now um, quite a lot in this interview, um, is it really surprising that almost all representations of the modern clown in this era is always a negative one. It's always demonic in some way. Um, I mean, the modern popular uh, popularization of the clown aesthetic, I believe, is likely an attempt to get people to um, mimic the ancestor worship practice of folk traditions of the world, like I mentioned earlier, uh, without knowing it. So, you know, this is a this is a kind of I think we see the clown now in a lot of modern media forms, um, especially since the rise of, like I said, the 2016 clown sightings. Um, which wasn't that long ago. It seems like there was a slight resurgence in 2018 of something similar. Um, but since then, I, I think the, the if it was on the media, if it was on the news, you know, um, I think it was it was on purpose. So the 2016 clown sightings is kind of like a a jump lead, which started up the the engine of this little clown car in people's minds, you know. Um, and I don't believe it was an accident. I think the mainstream media. Uh, drew humanity's attention to this on purpose with the 2016 clown sightings and made a big fuss about it on the news. Um, you know, and then, like I said, I mentioned earlier, the advent of this this phrase clown world became prolific. Um, and the new age types, you know, would say that the the jester archetype has been popping up in individuals ever since, you know. Um, again, I would just describe this as more people are being possessed by Nephilim spirits now. Um, and a lot of this is done through things like the media. So, you know, not long after the 2016 clown sightings, um, It was released, actually, you know, a remake of the film It, the Stephen King novel. Um, and what is It, you know, but a a a shape-shifting spider demon who manifests physically as a clown in order to attract children and cannibalize them, you know. Um, so the archetype are all there to a Nephilim creature. Um, a lot, a lot of the Nephilims of the past and these giants of the past have been described as shapeshifters in their own way. So I think it's a nod and a wink to that. Um, I think it's interesting that deadlights are often associated with a lot of Stephen King's characters, and um, the deadlights within it are kind of like its its manifestation of the spiritual realm, what it's truly connected to within its form. You know, so there's something weird about that, as though it's uh, got a, a element of a being of light attached to it, and I think. Um, what I've I've not done much on this, but I think the deadlights in these Stephen King things is is a is a nod and a wink to the light of Freemasonry. I think uh, hidden within the occult nature of these symbols, like the clown. Um, but the clown itself, there was a film called Clown in 2014, which was about an individual um, who finds a clown outfit in the attic. He needs to find one quickly for his son's birthday or something, but then he finds he can't take the outfit off. And then slowly but surely he starts to get taken over by the outfit. And he learns that he's been he's wearing the skin of a demon, which was known in uh, folklore as a cloin in Sweden or something, or some Scandinavian country. Um, and he has to eat five children in order to be free from it. Uh, so this link between clowns eating children it seems to be something that the media constantly pushes. I think you'll find any representation of a demon that we find in most films now or possession of a demon in some way 
incorporates a large grin of some kind, another another clown aesthetic or a jester joker light aesthetic. We just saw a film come out recently called Smile, which is about this wide grinning smile demon, you know, and again, clowns are synonymous with smiling and happy and fun, you know, and it's kind of been twisted on its head and inverted through this. And I think we're seeing more and more manifestations of the clown in media, but it's not, it's not just media like film and music. I mean, if you want to go off music, um, I think you'll find that a lot of musicians dress in a very clownish manner and aesthetic, including black and white patterns. Um, think of Kiss, for example, wearing black and white and so sticking the tongue out like the Gorgon or the Hindu Kali, for example. Another evocation of the same demonic spirits which people do in other cultures knowingly. Um, we get a lot of people dressing in psychedelic clothing or I think it's known as like a dead makeup or something like that where they have the black and white pattern to make themselves like a skull on their face. But um, I think the clown motif, it runs deep throughout a lot of the creative arts. I mean, one very on the nose example would be the Juggalos, you know, of uh, the insane clown posse who essentially created a cult of people who willingly dress uh, like the Nephilim in order to evoke them, you know, and it's no coincidence that murder is a core topic within most of their music. Um, Right now in the fashion industry, uh, Clowncore, literally just a few months ago, has been announced as the latest fashion trend. And, you know, what you see on the runways trickles down slowly into the mainstream store outlets eventually. And it seems like clown aesthetic clothing has been rolled out on the catwalks. And it's trying to say to people, you know, dress like a clown. It's cool now. It's fashionable. I just see this as a continued attempt to... um, if I can coin a phrase, Nephilimify the public, you know, and the clever irony being behind all of this, of course, is that no one knows it's happening. You know, they see it as merely something humorous and uh, quite literally a joking matter. But to dress like a clown is actually very serious when you consider my, my topic and what I've said here, because what you're doing is the same thing folk traditions do. You're dressing like a demon spirit in order to evoke the spirit. The only difference is those tribes know what they're doing. But when we do it here in the Western secularist type setting, we're ignorant of the fact that we're doing that. So I, I won't be surprised if we see more and more risings of, of, of demonic activity and behavior from people, the more and more we see the, this clown aesthetic appear in, in the way people look. Now, one example we can go off here without getting too deep into it because unfortunately these are a, a protected class right now in society but i i would call them the multicolored collective let's say and there's this group of people right now that have strong political and socio-political sway right now over what people can and cannot say and the general aesthetic of these people is bright colored hair bright colored clothing um, clown-like makeup and aesthetics and attitudes and beliefs, you know. And um, I think you can find things like, you know, people have said to me, you know, things like the drag community um, have very clownish features, usually in a lot of their shows and things like that. Um, and it, it makes you wonder why that's so popular right now as a, as a thing on TV, you know. And it also makes you wonder from my perspective, what kind of thing has possessed them to dress like that? You know, you could you could use that phrase as a colloquialism, but um, I would say perhaps it's a lot more literal than we would think. I mean, to, to, to dress that way 
I believe, is is a form of the the entity within them using the flesh that they are fully comfortable living within now uh, to look more and more like their true self. You know, it could be interpreted that way through this theory. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm sure you probably have many examples of films and music where you've seen this aesthetic yourself. But um, I, again, I could I have done this in my series and I could go on for hours about it, but you'll find the clown aesthetic is very prevalent right now in the modern age in clothing, in music, and in film. Um, and it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's all by design. Um, have you noticed anything yourself? Have you got any key moments where you've seen the clown manifest in uh, in modern art? Well, I think, you know, I mean, obviously, a lot of people tend to look at the Joker, uh, which is, you know, fair enough. I mean, there's a lot of fascinating things around that uh, particular archetype and how it's come into being as i said earlier mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of association with victor hugo and uh, the man who laughs but i actually think that in this context the uh the fiction of stephen king is a lot more fascinating and i actually mm -hmm. kind of go back to uh one of my all-time favorite movies uh 1995 film uh called in the mouth of madness that john carpenter directed uh, but it's based around a horror writer who's uh, sort of a combination of Stephen King and H.P. Lovecraft, who disappears uh, before his most recent novel is uh, due to be turned over to his publisher for a release. And um, a private detective is uh, hired to track him down. And the story unfolds against essentially an apocalyptic backdrop in which uh Kane's uh the author's name is Sutter Kane by the way uh in which his uh followers Sutter, um the you know the Kaneites and so forth <laughs> oh interesting yeah, are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know basically being possessed uh by these entities from his fiction and as the film goes on they start transforming into these monstrous uh beings but even before then you know they're just going insane they're going around committing all of these rash acts of violence um one of the more kind of famous scenes from the film is uh when the private detective who's played by sam nail from jurassic park is uh sitting in a um a restaurant with uh an insurance agent who's hiring him for this job they're looking over some files they're sitting by like a window seat and you see this guy with an axe who is uh walking up uh, to the window and they don't notice him and then finally he uh, comes and puts the axe through the window is it about to hack them up when a police officer kills him but uh, later you find out that this was kane's agent <laughs> But yeah, it's just sort of an ongoing thing where society is breaking down because of this rash of madness and all kinds of things like that. And it's interesting in light, even though the movie is definitely much more heavily influenced by H.P. Lovecraft's fiction, I find it fascinating in the context of what Stephen King did uh, with his own fiction going into the early 21st century, especially in regards to uh, the Dark Tower series, yeah, which essentially became kind of this meta-universe that he brought pretty much all of his uh, major works into. And specifically, uh, it was later revealed, I believe, by King himself, I, I think in 2016, if I remember correctly, that the um, the Crimson King, who's sort of the like satanic antagonistic figure 
within the Dark Tower series, who oversees the Dark Tower itself, who the hero Roland is uh, continuously questing to uh, reach and stop the Crimson King. He's essentially the same being as Pennywise, uh, hmm. the Spider God, or whatever you want to refer to it as. But there's just so much fascinating stuff about the Dark Tower mythos. I mean, you have obviously the... Um, son that's uh, spawned from Roland after he uh, is essentially raped by this um, incubus or I can't remember if it be an incubus or succubus like deity uh, versus sperm effectively which creates this sort of monstrous Mordred type figure uh, you have like just the sort of in continuous alternate realities and all this other stuff. Of course, the rose symbolism. Uh, I didn't, you know, again, I I had read most of the Stephen King stuff, and I was rather young, uh, you know, a teenager, early twenties, and I was not very aware of a lot of occult symbolism at the time. But going back in hindsight, there's just so much remarkable stuff that was incorporated into the dark tower series and then of course on top of that king later brought in i mean almost all of his other major works i mean the stand is also heavily incorporated into it through the figure of uh, randall flag slash the man in black there's even sort of some nods of i guess discordianism in it uh, with the castle discordia stuff and the song of suzanne and all these other things but it's so just interesting because King's work, obviously, is just so insanely popular now. I mean, it's, you know, we kind of take for granted how pervasive his influence is in the 21st century. But, um, you know, as the uh, the fictional uh, Sutter King character in the film in The Mouth of Madness boasts at one point more people have read his books than have read the Bible. I don't know if that's quite the case with Stephen King, but it, it cannot be denied that uh, the amount of people that have read his work is just astronomical. And then on top of that, the people that have been touched by it mm. through these... I, I, I remember... But I actually read the Dark just, Tower series. Well, if I can finish, there was like the one other point that I want to make about this. This so no, of course. was the decision that he made in the latter point parts of the series to break down the third wall effectively and incorporate himself as a character into it. And implying that, you know, that it is intertwined with the real world. I mean, it's in hindsight almost a kind of work, to borrow a term from the uh, the cybernetic cultural research unit, I mean, almost like a work of hyperstition or something like that. Uh, a kind of attempt almost to make fiction manifest in reality, if you will. So I just, mm. and, you know, this is something I wouldn't have really thought of uh, till fairly recently, but I mean, going back and looking at a lot of the the references that are in the dark tower books and the fact that he's essentially trying to write himself into this series as a character he's combining his whole meta universe in these books it's just it, it's really fascinating in this context and then ultimately all of this is presided over by this this crimson king this uh kind of clown deity if you will yeah no i remember i remember reading the dark tower but i actually only read the first one i remember it was about the the cowboy type character wandering through a desert dimension being um was he going chasing after the man in black or was that what he was doing or was he yes, being chased yes, yes, yes. was he ch being chased by i can't remember i remember him going back and forth between a serial killer wasn't it who was pushing people called the pusher wasn't it who was pushing people into trains you and out the man in black is randall flag who is the uh the main antagonist in the stand essentially 
Right. Yeah. So it's all connected. He kind of made like a joint universe through this Dark Tower series. Is that that was the angle he was going for? Was it? No. That's that's fascinating. And it can hardly be surprising that symbolically speaking, you know, he represented a clown deity as the big bad. You know, um, it's it's all it's all there, isn't it? it again, the, what what you said is fascinating. It truly is. I agree with you. I'm looking at images now of In the Mouth of Madness, yeah, and um, I recognize this film. I must have watched it years ago and probably forgot about it, but uh, I see the man with the axe looking at them through the window now. Um, it looks almost comical, in fact, but uh, I imagine it was meant to be quite a serious scene. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Well, definitely, if you get a chance, go back and rewatch it, because I think it's uh, it's very interesting in light of things that have happened recently. But yeah, I just I, I think the whole thing with the Dark Tower was... I don't think that we kind of like recognize that a lot, but because of just how pervasive and influential Stephen King's work is and the fact that it's, you know, I mean, been incorporated into so many of the other really popular franchises that he's been involved with. It's um, mm-hmm. it's fascinating and just how he managed to slip in a lot of, I think, this, um, you know, this very peculiar strand of occult knowledge into this franchise in a way that... Um, you know, it would effectively gain popular appeal. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I feel like a lot of people who are in the know about occult knowledge use the occult knowledge to get um, notoriety and fame quite easily by retelling the same stories from the occult, but to the profane, you know. Now, to the initiated, obviously, when someone reads something like Stephen King in a secret society, they probably actually gleam a lot more from it than someone like me or you would. You know, he probably references a hell of a lot more about the occult mysticisms than we might even pick up on, you know. Um, another big example is, let's say, someone like J.K. Rowling, you know, an author who has created this entire universe which you know is harry potter about the wizarding world which is a basically a secret society um hidden from the the visual abilities of the muggles as we call it you know and uh, those who were initiated into the secret society can understand and see the symbols and the signs and use the magic and the power to their own gain and abilities but the profane masses do not understand it and she's basically just manifested in her work um some a very true thing about how the nature of this reality works you know but it's it's been mystified and kind of um hidden under layers of artistic nuance you know um with the wands and the lights and the you know the the mystical concept of running through dimensional walls to big castles and things like that but uh it's all rooted in some kind of allegory for reality so when stephen king obviously represents that there's this dimension of evil that it uh, spurns off into every facet of life or fiction, including reality, as he merges the two together. Um, he's, he's, he's saying something, isn't he? He's saying something that is true, that rings just enough true to the profane that they wouldn't fully understand what he's trying to say, but it's enough that it pulls on those subtle understandings we have, whether we know it or not, about the nature of reality. You know, it's clever. It's a clever technique, and I do believe that's what magic, a lot of magic truly is. It's the ability to manipulate language in order to influence people, you know? Well, I mean, it's almost in a sense prophetic in a way, because I mean, you know, we, uh, as you've been kind of referencing, you know, there is almost this sort of concept of these, you know, two worlds uh, that exist sort of simultaneously with one another in the same space as other dimensions or however you want to think of it as, uh, which is almost what King is kind of getting at with Roland's world in contrast to our own world, because it's related in so many ways, uh, yet it developed in a different capacity. But I'm yeah. I'm actually reading um some of you have sent me a comic book and it's a huge thick thing 
called The Invisibles. Have you heard of that before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm, I've never read it, but I'm familiar yeah. with it. And it's basically the same thing we're talking about here. And yeah, he's proud of himself as a character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That these two worlds as well, you know, like you say, that are side by side and um, only one knows that both exist, but the other has no clue type of thing. Um, and these are all just... Well, I also, think so too. It's you know just the fact that he kind of alludes as the Dark Tower series goes on with the bleed over into the two worlds, but especially Roland's world mm. uh, crossing over into ours. Because again, this is something that he wrote in the early knots. Um, but I think it's kind of fascinating because it is almost like a precursor to something like the Mandela effect or something. Like oh that. yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I do, I do think we're seeing uh, a lot of people describe it in in the conspiracy Christian kind of world as um, a thinning of the veil. You know. Um, as we get further and further into time right now, I think the, the veil of perception between our realm and their realm is getting thinner. And we're seeing more and more manifestations of them into our realm, which is why I believe the clown aesthetic is becoming more and more prolific as time goes on into the modern era. Um, I think we are witnessing, like I said, this, this thinning of, of the veil between their realm and our realm. Now, um, this may be a, a good way to get into things like AI, you know, uh, a lot of people argue that that is something similar and that's what that is. Now, I, I personally don't subscribe fully to this idea that all AI is demons, you know, communicating with us. I, th- I know that is a popular one. Um, I think you've watched my video on this, I assume. Um, but uh, obviously, I have a, a slightly different understanding of what's going on there. Uh, I think it does relate to what we just discussed about the, the bleeding of their reality into ours in many ways. Um, but, but what I see with something like AI, artificial intelligence, I see that as kind of one one facet of many technological developments towards creating a, a new body of of of, of, a, of a kind, um, a robotic body in a sense. It could be holographic in nature, I'm not sure. But I, I think with transhumanism, which is this drive to become immortal, you know, for, mainly funded by very rich people who just do not want to die. Um, the idea is to create a vessel that's that that cannot die, that can also house the human consciousness. That's kind of the end goal of of transhumanism. Can we transfer our consciousness into a vessel that cannot die? And my personal belief is that AI is kind of the development of the brain for this new vessel. You know, it's it's um it's trying to recreate a kind of a, a mind that has the capacity to to hold a consciousness like a human's mind can, like a brain can. Um, and I, th- I think right now maybe entities can communicate with us through it in an Ouija board style, perhaps. But I think when this AI comes to its true fruition, what, what truly has been created is the replica of a human brain. And if you can recreate a human brain, then you can recreate something that can house the soul, you know? And I think a lot of these people who fund this thing, who pushed for this development of this new body, believe it will be for them in the end. But I say, once you recreate a body like that, that cannot house the Holy Spirit, because it was never meant to be that way, 
it's not the natural order of things, uh, then these disembodied spirits will gladly inhabit these brand new bodies that we've just built for them. And I think a lot of the agendas are pushing towards this angle, you know, build a new body for us so we can come back and be physical once more. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, possession of human bodies just is not optimal for demons because we can kick them out at any moment that we decide to fill ourselves with the Holy Spirit. And you can't dwell in a human's body once it's full of the Holy Spirit. It's just not ideal, you know. But if you can create a vessel, a body that cannot house the Holy Spirit, then that's a win for the demons as far as I'm concerned. And we're kind of building that for them, you know. And uh, the secularists will still believe when it happens that it's just the robot uprising. But as you know, I understand it, it's just the demonic return. Well, yeah, it's, you know, it's very fascinating to me in the context of what I was getting to um, earlier with uh, Haran and uh, the accounts of the, the talking statues there. Um, another interesting tradition uh that was repeated that supposedly uh was conducted there was that they had a um a uh, disembodied head mm. that would talk to them and communicate to them which again is really fascinating because uh, as i had alluded to earlier you this is right next to edessa where there was a strong templar presence later the the Templars were, of course, accused of having a uh, a talking head as well that they took their marching orders from. But there's also the whole tradition, I believe, around Albert uh, Magnus. The, um, I believe he was a Benedictine or Dominican. I can't remember which one, but he was one of the monastic orders. And uh, there was also the whole tradition that he had had a mechanical talking head as well. I believe Thomas Aquinas was the one who uh, complained about it because it would never shut up, if I recall. <laughs> but um yeah it's going back to at least ancient egypt possibly also samaria i'm not sure but certainly with egypt there were these accounts of uh, these talking statues and in their traditions these ones you know the vessels that the gods came down from the heavens and resided in so that they could communicate with them and mm -hmm. i think that this is potentially what was behind uh some of these latter traditions we hear of like these talking heads and so forth within these esoteric orders and as time went on uh gradually it went from these devices uh that would be the repositories of the gods quote unquote to uh you know just basic possession by human beings themselves as we see you know like with Wudan, horse and rider and some of this other stuff that you've been talking about yeah but in the early days it was actually uh these quote-unquote statues that were used as the receptacles for the uh these intelligences so that's why I find the whole thing again with AI fascinating and I mean obviously the potential of like you're talking about with robots you know that have these sort of conscious intelligences quote unquote because it almost seems like in a certain sense this could be viewed as an attempt to recreate uh, some of these traditions from Egypt maybe even in a uh, superior fashion to what they had back then. Mm. Um, that's certainly especially when i had looked into some of the whole uh you know concepts of extended intelligence that have been floating around with ai it um it really leads to some fascinating possibilities and of course some of the comments that uh you know even the people involved in the research have made i mean i think it was uh gordy 
what's his name? Oh gosh, I can't remember now, but the guy who had uh, equated the uh, consciousness of the uh, AIs to Lovecraftian entities. There's obviously been a lot of these speculations with quantum computing that it's communicating with another dimension or something like that. So yeah, I mean, I do very much think that there is, at least in some quarters, this belief that you know what I mean? I'm talking about specifically within Silicon Valley. I mean, it really does seem to be the belief that the um, that some of these computers, that these advanced AIs could be used to house some kind of uh, other intelligence, let's just say. Well, yeah, absolutely. I, I don't doubt it at all. And like I said, it does seem like, you know, people communicate with these these uh, chatbots now, for example, which is another example of a talking statue as far as I'm concerned. Um you know, we I think our technology now is a little bit more advanced than these talking statues as well, and I think um, these entities can certainly communicate with us through electric electronical devices and means. Um, I think these these beings are electrical in nature, you know, um, frequency in nature, you know, electromagnetic, let's say, um, and they do use these devices to communicate with us. I think we've come a long way from the wooden Ouija board with the alphabet printed onto it, you know, um, and something like you know asking a chatbot a question could easily be fair game for an entity on the other side of the veil to use it to communicate with humans. I absolutely, I don't deny that at all. Um, but I do think we are still in the infancy stage. I think it's the testing of individual neurons in this new brain they're trying to build that we're witnessing right now. And I'm not saying they're too far away from, you know, creating this, this vessel in this brain, probably not at all, but uh, I think we're in the beta testing phase right now. Um, I think the future is going to look very strange. In the next uh, 10 years alone, I think we're going to see some vast advancements, which are going to be a little bit trippy. I mean, um, I couldn't even, even have predicted uh, 10 years ago where we are now with some of this stuff. I mean, the way AI is going right now, what it's capable of is getting more and more terrifying by the day. I mean, I, I'm a photographer, you know, that's what I do as a job. And uh, my wife was showing me uh, the updates to Photoshop now and what that's capable of doing just for the prompt. You know, you can you can remove things, edit areas just by asking the machine to do it for you now. And uh, it's putting a lot of people out of a job, I'll say. You know, <laughs> But uh, what would have taken me maybe an hour to edit out with the skills I'd learned how to master this tool can now be done just by tapping a few words into a bar, you know, Um and that's that's not to say the ability is now for AI art to create images out of nothing, you know, just out of a simple prompt. Uh, the abilities of chat GPT in order to write and correct a full no novel for you in seconds, you know, or uh, to copyright to, you know, be a copywriter for you to check over your own work within seconds. Um, we are We are already essentially becoming more and more dominated by machines. And I think it would be a logical next step in order to, uh, transfer our consciousness into a machine which i think is the promise that's being given to us through the offer of uh, transhumanism and obviously the promise will be you'll be immortal you'll live forever you'll have the uh, the capacity and processing power of, of a supercomputer rather than your pathetic human brain uh, you will be as gods you know it's the first lie told to us in the garden of eden it's the same promise we're being told today um i think the irony and the the joke of all of this um is that what we're about to build isn't really for us. It's for entities we don't even know or believe exist, you know, that have influenced, influenced us to get this far to begin with. Um, and I think with the manifestations of the clown, 
in our in our society right now as an archetypical reference but also as a literal manifestation of the spirits of the other realm are, are maybe a warning sign you know that this veil is getting thinner and it's only a matter of time before they have the ability to truly be back here in physical form uh, right now people dress up like them and make it look like they're here in physical form i think soon we'll see them back in physical form whatever that would be and they'll be worshipped as gods and kings again like they were before the flood again you know, you see a giant, what would you do in that situation? As described earlier, what would you do when you see an, an immortal robot walking and talking in front of you? What do you do in that respect? You can't fight it. It'll tear you to shreds. <laughs> you can't intellectually argue with it. it has, its brain capacity is far faster than your processing power. Uh, then you bow down and worship it, just like we did with the giants. It's the same thing. Um, same game, different name. And uh, again, this... The clown thing that I'm working on is, is as far as I see, it's a way of um, knowing what to look for because they're hiding in plain sight right now, you know. But I think if people understand that the clown aesthetic is not is not really a laughing matter, the closer we'll get to people not being so easily deceived, perhaps we can slow down this progression a little bit. I don't know, but uh, it's still interesting nonetheless to talk about. It's kind of funny, too. I was thinking that uh, you almost see sort of a proto-precursor of a lot of these uh, threads coming together in um, uh, Disney World. Uh, again, you know, obviously there's so much of the... Uh, well, I mean, I don't really have to even get into, you know, I mean, Disney was a well-known basin and so forth. But um, just the fact that, you know, again, you're bringing kids continuously to these parks, which are just awash with all these animatronic devices. Mm -hmm. uh, I have often uh, kind of wondered about that. But yeah, it's um, kind of a, maybe puts to an eerie uh, foreshadowing of like where we're heading towards almost. Yeah, well, the... the um... The kind of facsimiles of reality is what uh, theme parks like that are, aren't they? They're, not, they're kind of mimicking reality, but they're not quite no, they're there. They're increasingly becoming the reality. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Is uh, Originally, it was like a polished version of reality, but as as reality starts to meld with this fiction, our own world is becoming this mass-produced plastic facade of reality, you know, Um we can get into the whole lack of uh, creativity and, and beauty standards within art these days and our architecture, you know, but I think that's a topic for another time. Uh, but this, this whole clown subject, like I said, you can start talking about it, but you end up going down many of the rabbit holes as a result. It touches on everything. It's, it permeates all things. Um, I think, you know, we, we haven't even discussed things like, you know, the hat man, for example, um, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say to, uh, to wrap it, up, do you want to get into the hat yeah. here a little bit? Yeah, well, the, the one of the foremost, uh, I say experts, but the person who's kind of uh, compiled the most information on this is an author called Heidi Hollis. And she compiled a bunch of people's um, experiences with this bizarre entity, the shadow entity known as the Hatman. And you'll find the Hatman is just as prolific as the clown uh, throughout modern media as well, um, especially musicians. Um, they often dress like this. Uh, the Hatman as well... Um, Interesting enough, if you want to get into Freemasonry, uh, the Grand Master wears a hat, like a top hat to himself, and he's the only one who's allowed to wear the hat. So as the leader of the sect, you know, um, let's consider the Hat Man also the ringleader of the circus, you know, is the entity who stands in the middle of the circus and orchestrates the whole thing. Um, but many people discuss seeing 
um, during sleep paralysis and in their nightmares, this entity, which has this tall top hat or fedora-like hat, um, chasing them or in its in the presence of this entity people describe it as being the most terrifying thing they've ever experienced it just oozes fear and being around it is the coldest scariest experience that one can can imagine you know um and it seems to be it's obviously something that does exist because of the amount of stories attesting to its existence it's something that is in this other realm with the clowns with the nephilim with the demons you know um is it a form of nephilim demon i don't know i don't know what it is exactly it is it could it be perhaps a fallen angel you know who can manifest physically and spiritually just is way more powerful than a nephilim in every respect you know um or whatever it is it's synonymous with with the demonic realm and i think symbolically speaking again within the circus it's interesting that the leader of the clowns is the ring leader the hat man you know um, i think it's fascinating that wearing the hats the top hat is a common music music fashion let's think of slash for example he's one who's quite famous for it but i think you'll find that many people do it all the time um there's something about this hat and also i think this this whole top hat being linked explicitly with the leader of freemasonry and the grand master of freemasonry is another example but it's um it's not something we can ignore this hat man is connected in some way to all of this it's um even in the media let's say the conjuring one of the main demons in there is the crooked man and it's a wide grinned pale skinned jagged teeth monster who has a hat you know um the specific type of hat and I think it's I think it's it's prolific just as much as the clown, and it can't be ignored as a part of this whole connection. Um, yeah, I mean, even the uh, the Madang I mentioned in Korea, the shaman who willingly gets possessed by the demons in order to solve family quarrels and gets paid to do so, uh, she wears a tall pink top hat with a feather in it. It's the same thing. If you go to Vodou religion and the voodoo's, you know, the voodoo of Haitian religion, the main deity, which is an ancestor spirit, they call Baron Semedi, wears the top hat. It's the same thing. Um, it's everywhere. It's a, specifically a shaman thing as well. I find uh, the use of a, of a particular hat. But even then, you can go off and then go into um, the hats of the the wizards, even the Solomonari. You know, for example, uh, that I mentioned in Romania. They often depict as wearing a strange uh, wizard type of hat. The cone-shaped hat, you know, is a really common uh, motif within people within the occult. People say it's used to focus the energies of the ether down to the skull or to focus the magic in some way. But uh, there's you something about even, this. Uh, you could even really point to the hat that the Pope typically wears or uh, mm -hmm. the one that frequently Pharaoh is depicted as wearing as well. Absolutely, yeah. I think a lot of those hats um, mask the elongated skull that is underneath as well i think it's it could be representative of that as well because it was a tall hat you know and the nephilim entities were said to have elongated skulls so it could be a link to that or a nod and a wink to that if not a literal representation of it um there's so much you can get into with this 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 concept of of the hat in some way but what we do know is there is a specific demon we've called the hat man who plagues people you know and is seen distinctly looking always the same um, if anyone's interested on my channel, I actually have a video called The Hat Man, A Demonic Encounter. And it's my experience with him. So I've seen him myself. I've had an experience with this in a dream. And it truly was one of the most terrifying experiences that I've ever had. And I've I've documented it thoroughly on my channel. 
with images as well. I, I even drew what he looked like. He <laughs> um, looks like a pimp, to be honest. <laughs> That's, I didn't think about that at the time. Um, but even then, the pimp culture itself, you know, um, this hat with a cane, with this this weird overcoat on, this trench coat in some way, all the multicolored clownish psychedelic patterns, the bling as well. Um, there's something behind this. There's a spirit here at play that manifests into people, you know, uh, a controlling spirit of some kind. Um, uh, there seems to be a leader controlling spirit of people, uh, of the clowns, let's say. Um, so if, if you go off, um, people say there's a hierarchy in heaven of angels and there's also a hierarchy of the demons in hell. Perhaps this hat man is like a general of some kind and the, the, the Nephilim demons are just the foot soldiers, you know. I don't know. Um, I can only speculate. But um, what I do know is it's it's real, you know. I've seen it myself, so I can attest to it on my own account. But many other people have seen it too. And the weird thing is, you know, I had the experience. I said to myself, what the hell was that? I did the research and then only then discovered that it's a real thing that other people also experience. So it's not like I was influenced to think about it. You know, it's something that really happened to me. Um, so it's bizarre. It's bizarre. And you know, that, that was one of the many experiences that kind of led me to this whole research to begin with, I suppose, among other things. But um, the hat line can't be ignored. It's, it's, um, it cannot be ignored. That's for sure. All right, sir. It has been a fascinating chat. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts here before we sign off? Uh, no, just uh, if if you're interested in this and you want a bit more uh, more visuals of things we've discussed, so you can actually see what I'm talking about. This, this is a very visual topic. Um, go to my channel and uh, follow the Nephilim Look Like Clown series. It's been going for six years now. Um, my earlier work was stopped over four years ago. I had a gap. I had a five, about a four to five year gap in doing anything on the channel. I had to stop um, because my work at the time found the channel and basically threatened to demote me if I continued. Um, I wasn't in any position at that time to lose my job, so I had to stop making videos. I don't work there anymore. I'm self-employed now, and I've started the channel up, and I basically picked up from where I left off with this series six years ago. Uh, so the more modern videos you see from the more the past uh, maybe five to six months, I would say, are the better quality ones. I've come a long way since then. <laughs> um, but if you want more information on what I've talked about, go check out my channel, uh, Understanding Conspiracy. And yeah, um, check out the series, The Nephilim Look Like Clowns. Um, also, I do a weekly live show every every Sunday, which is a bit longer and more in-depth, where I share um, where my research is taking me currently. Um, I am writing the book on this. Um, I am currently 10 chapters in, and I predicted there's going to be about 36 chapters to this book. Um, if you want to support that, there's a GoFundMe for that, which you can find on my channel. But um, I'm regularly posting snippets from the book as I write it, so you can keep up to date with the kind of things I'm thinking about and talking about. Um, but other than that, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Honestly, I've enjoyed this. Yeah, same here, sir. I'll have to have you back here one of these days. I'm sure there's any number of other uh, topics that we can get into. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, like I said, uh, I'll be writing this book for a year. So if you want to check in closer to the end of finishing this book, maybe we can get some <laughs> more information out there because I'm learning more stuff every day. And like I said, I've been doing this for six years. It just doesn't stop. Yeah. It just doesn't stop. Yeah, no, it never does. No. All right. On that note, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, as always, good night and good luck to you.
。好